Hey, welcome back to the Just the Two of Us podcast where you know the deal. It's just the two of us. I'm John. I am Nate. And it is 100% absolutely guaranteed just the two of us. Except tonight, we have a special guest, Mr. Randy Lindholm. Welcome in. What's going on, Pop? Hey, it's a nice evening in Red Wing tonight. Glad to have you in studio with us tonight. Yeah. So me and Nate are testing out a new segment uh, I don't know if we did we name it yet. No, we didn't. Story time with pops. That's a great one. So story time with pops it is. So we invited dad into the studio tonight. Something that we used to love to do as kids, whether we, you know, expressed the gratitude or not when we were children, we did. <laughs> yeah. We did enjoy it. <laughs> we did. Um, and not just because we got to stay up later uh, around the campfire, but you know when we were kids, dad used to break out a few funny storybooks around the campfire and read them to us uh, and we would sit around and belly laugh until we passed out from eating too many s'mores. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so we invited Dad in to, uh, to read a few stories with us tonight. Pop, who you, uh, what author are you reading from tonight? Well, one of my favorites, it's, uh, his name is Patrick McManus. He was uh, born in 1933 and unfortunately, he died four years ago in 2018. What's the math on that? How old was he? 80, he was 84, I think, or 82. I believe it. Yeah, um, I'll buy your math. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you get turned on to Patrick F. McManus? Well, I've always been an avid reader. And uh, when I was younger, when I was first uh, getting up on hunting and fishing and whatnot, I subscribed to uh, Outdoor Life magazine. Okay. And he was a columnist. He had a humorous column in there. Okay. And he also wrote for Field and Stream. And uh, then the collections of his, they're all short stories. So the, book, the books came after? Yep. The books came later. They collected all his stories that were published in the magazines and put them in a book form. Oh, okay. So I I couldn't tell you exactly how many books there are, you know, yep. at least half a dozen of them. Okay. I haven't revisited any of his books, but from what I recall, he just had uh, a lot of misadventures, hunting, fishing, living on the farm. It was all misadventures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... and uh, he grew up in the in the hills in Idaho, the hills and mountain country of Idaho, northern Idaho. Yep. And uh, so he uh, knew some characters that lived out there in the hills and countryside. Sure. And uh, so the true the stories all have a true base, but he uh, loosely defines that. <laughs> Adds a little spice here and there, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, without further ado, do you want to uh, go to the book? We should. Let's do it. This is Storytime with Pops. Can't wait. This first story is called Phantom of the Woods. When I was a boy, I generally adhered like glue to the laws of fishing and hunting. This was due to my keen sense of truth, honor, duty, and sneed. Sneed was the local game warden, 
a person of mysterious powers that enable them to materialize any time of the day or night <laughs> at the very instant of a game violation. True, some people did not get away with violating the fish and game laws, but Sneed prevented them from enjoying the transgression. They would scurry toward home with their illegal catch, jumping at every snap of a twig, breaking into a cold sweat at every rustle of grass, and swiveling their heads to catch sight of any shadow that seemed ready to pounce on them. In all honesty, I must admit that it had not been, had it not been for Sneed, my sense of truth, honor, and duty might have been a good deal less keen. Sneed, even now, the sound of that name sends chills rippling down the highways and byways of my nervous system much as it did 40 years ago. Once, Rich Sweeney and I, 14 years old, were fishing a remote section of Sand Creek, so early that dawn was but a sliver of milder darkness in the east. No sane adult would be out and about at such an hour, in such a place. We were catching big, fat, red-bellied cutthroat, as fast as we could bait our hooks. Gripped as we were by a catching frenzy, the trout limit seemed a remote abstraction, a vague and boring notion we had once heard mentioned in our presence, but scarcely the sort of thing to intrude upon the excitement of the moment. In the darkness behind us, unknown numbers of fish flopped happily about on the gravel. What's our limit? I asked Wretch, chuckling. All we can catch plus one fish, Wretch said. <laughs> I lobbed another worm-laden hook out into the watery darkness, swirling beyond the gravel bar. Even as I detected a momentary chill in the air, as though a ghost had floated by, close enough to awaken the hairs on the back of my neck. Wretch, too, had noticed the chill. He glanced about, seeking shape and substance for the invisible horror. Sneed, Wretch croaked. I know it's Sneed. He's out there someplace, watching. I can feel his eyes burning into my... And then we saw him. A shadow emerging from the midst, shaped like a man in a big hat and a long coat, gliding over the gravel of the bar as silently as if it were moss. Sneed! Cripes! Howdy, boys! You up to a you're up a bite early this morning. Looks to me like you've been having some fine luck. Yes, sir, Wretch said. Some good, some bad. Reckon I know what you mean, Sneed said. You boys know how many fish you caught? Not exactly, I said. I'd guess we're pretty close to the limit, though. Right, but which side? The underside or the overside? He had me there. I never was too much good at puzzles, particularly while quaking in my tennis shoes. You know, do you boys? Well, let me put it this way. If each of you had caught one more fish, I would have had to take you in. Take us in? The dreaded Sneed, take us in? We would have vanished from the face of the earth, never be seen or heard of again. Two fairly innocent boys sucked into oblivion. 
And for what? Two lousy fish over the limit? <laughs> Actually, I was a little surprised to run into you two out here this hour of the morning, said the game warden. I was really hoping to catch that rascal, rancid crabtree. If you happen to see him, you might tell him that I'm checking these parts fairly often these days and nights. Try to keep it in mind yourselves. Then Sneed was gone in a swirl of mist, leaving a few boot prints on the gravel, almost as if he were human. <laughs> Rutch and I collected our fish. Sneed had miscounted. We were each still several fish shy of the limit. No point in being greedy, Rich said loudly, smoothing down the hairs on the back of his neck. No point in always trying to catch the limit. That's what I always say. Right, I shouted. That's what I always say, too. <laughs> on the way home, we stopped by Rancid Crabtree's shack, fired up his barrel stove, and put a pot of coffee on the boil. As always, the old woodsman was delighted to see us. Gold dang! <laughs> What's the idea barging in here in this hour in the morning, disturbing a man's sleep? Because Rancid's normal voice was a high-pitched squeal, accomplished with little or no movement of his lips. Someone meeting him for the first time might easily have jumped to the conclusion the man was agitated. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Gold dang, he squealed between his teeth, throwing off his blankets. You fellas eat a man out of house at home, for he's even out of bed. We brought you some fish, I said, nibbling on a hard, cold biscuit. I got fish, he said, yawning, combing his hair back with his fingers. I bet, I said. That's what brought us up here this morning. Sneed caught us down on the creek, scared the daylights out of us. You let old Sneed catch you, Rancid said, cackling. That's the funniest thing I ever heard. He let us go, though. No, Sneed let you go? We were still a few fish short of our limit, but he told, told us to warn you. Warn me? Yeah, Wretch said, filling three grimy mugs with coffee. He said, tell Crabtree I'm going to be out and about these parts and on the lookout for him. And if I catch him violating any fish and game regulations, I'm going to nail his hide to the barn. Ain't that about what he said, Pat? Pretty near, I said. Sneeze out to get you, Rancid. Oh, Old Sneed thinks he can nab me? Well, he's got another thing coming. They don't call me Phantom of the Woods for nothing. Yeah, I guess not, I said. Got any sugar for this coffee, Phantom? <laughs> the following winter, Rancid and I were ice fishing on O'Reilly Lake. The game regulations, according to Earl Pitts, said we could catch perch, colkins, and whitefish through the ice but we had to release any trout. We both already caught and released several smallish rainbows. A dozen or so other ice fishermen were scattered about the lake in our vicinity, but otherwise the great expanse of the ice was empty. 
There was absolutely no way the game warden could approach without one of the ice fishermen spotting him and sounding the warning. Sneed's coming. Pass it along. The general concern about Sneed didn't mean that we were a bunch of deliberate logbreakers. What it meant was almost nobody ever sat down and actually read the fish and game regulations. It worked like this. You might ask Fred Jones what the limit on whitefish was. Jones might say, ain't none. How do you know, Fred? Because Pete Wilson told me. How did Pete know? Sam Miller had told him, and so on. You assume that somewhere back in the beginning of this chain of information, there was someone who actually read the regulations. But you could never be sure. You yourself wouldn't want to read the regulations because they gave you a headache. That was why it was necessary to keep a lookout for Sneed. Headaches. Rancid had considerable success that winter, trapping skunks. The phrase, smell of success, was perhaps never more accurately descriptive than when applied to rancid, and this explained why no fishermen were sit situated downwind of us. These were the circumstances that played right into Sneed's hands. As we hunched over our little holes in the ice with clouds of snow whipping around us, Rancid suddenly shouted, Golding, I got a big one on. After much trashing and splashing, he hauled out a 20-inch rainbow trout. He removed the hook and laid the trout on the ice. Wow, what a beauty, I said. That's the nicest fish I've seen all year. Too bad you have to throw it back, Rancid. The old woodsman stared at me, then down at his fish. He turned his head about, checking this way and that. <laughs> trying to peer through the gusts of snow. I said, Rancid, too bad you have to throw it back. Oh, I suppose so, he said. He picked up the trout and held it out toward the hole in the ice. Come on, fish, let go my hand. I said, let go my hand. Get back in the water. Oh, <laughs> dang it. If you ain't got gumption enough to wiggle out of my hand, you can just go home with me. I ain't gonna force you to jump back in that icy water if you don't want to. <laughs> Better toss it back, Rancid, I said. Oh, he said, this higher fish don't want to be tossed back. Do you fish? You wants to be snuck home and et by the phantom? Ain't that right, fish? <laughs> Ignoring what the fish might have to say, I peered off into the gusty snow. I've got some bad news for you, Phantom. Here comes Sneed. I wasn't fooling either. For a brief moment, I had glimpsed the shadowy form of a tall man gliding toward us through the billowing snow. Approaching on our downwind side, which was unprotected by an early warning system. <laughs> you joshing me the phantom said no I said but there's still time to toss the fish back you better not be lying he moved to toss the fish back but then stopped no I just can't do it it ain't natural to throw back a fish this big 
And with that, he opened up his coat, <laughs> stuffed the fish inside his shirt, and buttoned his coat back up. <laughs> then Sneed was on us. Howdy, man. Like to check your fishing license. See you got a nice catch of whitefish there. Ain't no limit on whitefish this year. Catch all you want. I suppose you know you, you got to throw any trout back, though. You know that, don't you, Crabtree? <laughs> sure, answered said. But then, to sneeze in my amazement, the phantom hunched slightly over and burst out in a shrieking <laughs> giggle, totally unbecoming a grown man. With obvious great effort, Rancid cut the giggle short. <laughs> the game warden and I st <laughs> stared at the old woodsman with considerable concern. His whole chest was <laughs> fluttering violently beneath his coat. <laughs> <laughs> you all right, Crabtree? The game warden asked. Ain't got a heart problem, have you? I'm fine. Fine, Rancid. Then let out a whoop that <laughs> got Sneed and me both to jump, <laughs> jump back. <laughs> the fluttering had now moved down to the <laughs> direction. <laughs> down the direction of the woodman's lower anatomy. <laughs> Rancid clutched his belly with both hands <laughs> began to dance <laughs> wildly about alternately whooping and giggling, <laughs> giggling and working in an occasional shrill burst of <laughs> cussing <laughs> <laughs> oh boy <coughs> what you got under your coat there Sneed asked his brow furrowing with suspicion <coughs> a big banana for my lunch <laughs> right in line just a big banana <laughs> Well, that's the liveliest banana I ever seen, Sneed growled. <coughs> Ain't it, though, Ransom said. <laughs> Sneed folded his arms and, appearing much less concerned, watched as Ransom struggled to control the fluttering and thrashing that now slid slowly down his pant leg. <laughs> Then the trout squirted out of the pants leg onto the ice. <laughs> the three of us stared down at the big flopping rainbow. Praise be, Rancid shouted. It's a miracle. <laughs> a banana turned into a fish. <laughs> Steed was already writing out a ticket, using my back as a desk. He handed the ticket to Rancid. That trout just cost you $25, Crabtree. $25, Rancid squealed. Then he turned to me and asked, How many skunks you reckon that is? I reckon about all the skunks in Idaho, I said. But they probably won't let you pay the fine with skunks. Well, hold on just a dang minute, Sneed. 
I don't think I was actually breaking the law. I was just warming the fish up <laughs> before <laughs> tossing it back in that icy water. <laughs> so, but Steed had vanished, leaving a couple of boot prints in the snow, almost as if he was human. The phantom of the wood, and I stood there thinking about truth, honor, duty, and Sneed. Then we packed up our white fish and headed home. <laughs> That's the liveliest banana I've ever seen. <laughs> Just a big banana. Was that a spit take I saw? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to drink while he was chuckling. Just lost it. Oh, man. <sighs> now I can't see you again. My eyes are all teared up. <laughs> <laughs> Which one of us hasn't been out there checking over our shoulders? All right. For the game warden to show up. I like the part two where he's talking about uh, you heard it from a guy, you heard it from a guy, you yeah. heard it from a guy. Yeah, well, that's exactly how it goes. Oh, exactly. None of us are out there having read the rule book. Reading the book. We just believe it from who tells us. <laughs> right. What's this book called? What's the okay. What's the title of this book? Well, the title of the book is Real Ponies Don't Go Oink. <laughs> and this would have to be the cover story. The story is Real Ponies Don't Go oink. Oh, let's dive in. Let's get into I'm that. I'm curious. <laughs> Even when we were small boys, Crazy Eddie Muldoon and I were gnawed by the terrible hunger known to nearly every boy in that distant time the hunger for our very own pony to ride. We dreamed the impossible dream. On our next birthday, or surely the one after, we would awaken to hear our beaming parents gush. Gets what's tied up out behind the woodshed, son. But before you rush off to see what it is, you'd better open this present that's in the shape of a saddle. Sure enough, the present would be a saddle. Then you would tear out of the house and there, hidden behind the woodshed, probably with a big bow around its neck, would be your very own pony. You would saddle up your pony and gallop off toward the horizon pausing only long enough to wave at your generous and thoughtful and loving parents, the very best parents in the whole world. My family wasn't big on impossible dreams. Shut up about a pony, my mother roared every time I brought up the topic. Ponies cost money. You think money grows on trees? Occasionally, I would ride one of our pigs by the kitchen window, hoping to shame Mom into buying me a pony. There goes old short in the saddle, my sister the troll would shout. <laughs> Hop along, hog, and gene oink, the smelly cowboy. <laughs> then she and mom would have a good laugh. Their response didn't leave me much hope of ever getting my very own pony by appealing to sympathy. Crazy Eddie fared scarcely better. Would you shut up about a pony? Mr. Muldoon would roar. Ponies cost money. You think money grows on trees? Still, the Muldoons had an actual farm with cows, sheep, pigs, chickens, rabbits, and even a goat, which, by the way, wasn't a bad ride. <laughs> a pony would have it have fit right in at, at the Muldoon menagerie. If you stared hard enough at their pasture, you could easily imagine a pony out there. You could almost see it, in fact, and one morning I did see it, galloping majestically across the pasture 
was, forget the dumb pony, a beautiful, huge, glistening black horse. Eddie was riding the horse. It was almost too much for me to bear. True, Eddie didn't exactly fit my idea of a cowboy. The horse's back was so broad that Eddie's stubby legs stuck straight <laughs> out on either side, as if he were doing an equestrian version of the splits. <laughs> Eddie and the horse were totally out of aesthetic proportion to each other. From a distance, the two of them looked like a mouse riding a tall dog, although I knew the image would hurt Eddie's feelings. You look like a mouse riding a tall dog, I called out to him. Eddie galloped over, reined in right next to me, and glared down. He had to lean out precariously in order to <laughs> see over the curve of the horse's barrel-shaped belly. You're just jealous, Eddie said. I bet you want to ride. Nah, I said. I'm expecting my own pony any day now. I'll wait and ride it. If you climb up the barbed wire and stand on top of that fence post, I'll pull you up, Eddie said. Okay, I said. I climbed the post, and Eddie hauled me up behind him. The view was wonderful from up there. You could see practically forever. The two of us rode off singing, back in the saddle again. Even though this was only our first time in the saddle, our legs jutted straight out to the side, so there was no reason to argue about who got to use the stirrups. Actually, doing the splits while trotting about on horseback isn't, isn't nearly as painful as it sounds. Excruciating, yes, but scarcely more uncomfortable than that. Cowboys are tough. <laughs> It turned out that old Tom, the horse, had recently been destined for another existence in the form of fox food. One of the farmers up the road raised foxes for their furs, and many a worn-out horse ended up there as the luncheon special. Apparently, the farmer had an excess of fox food for the moment and asked Eddie's father if he had use for a horse. Mr. Muldoon said he would probably think of one if he put his mind to it. Old Tom had already done a little time at the fox farm, and while exhausting the appeals process, he got, had got religion. <laughs> he had been a bad horse, even a wicked horse, and his former owner had finally got fed up with his behavior and sent him up the road. His first week at the Muldoons, Tom was still figuratively wiping the sweat from his brow over his narrow escape from a career as fox food. You couldn't have asked for a sweeter, gentler horse for two little boys. After a week or two, however, old Tom apparently forgot his last-minute reprieve. He got it into his head that he had always lived at the Muldoon farm, and furthermore, probably owned it. He soon relapsed to his former nasty self. Hardly a day went by that he didn't buck us off, while we tried to get his bridle on, he would casually place a hoof on one of my feet. Then he would put all his weight on that one hoof, balancing there with daylight showing between the ground and his other three hooves. <laughs> I would be yelling and thrashing about, and Tom would nonchalantly turn his head and look back, as if wondering what all the ruckus was. Eddie would be trying to get the bridle over Tom's ears, and the horse would suddenly jerk his head up and send Eddie flying. 
Old Tom was wearing us out. He finally became so haughty, he decided he didn't want to be ridden at all. Practically every day, carrying his bridle, we trailed Tom from one end of the farm to the other and back again, but almost never caught him. Then Eddie came up with the idea of roping the horse when it came to get a drink from the watering trough. First, though, we needed to find a rope. Eddie's father had been putting a new layer of shingles on the barn and had bought a long rope that he tied to a big, thick belt around his waist. He fastened the other end of the rope to a tractor, then climbed up a ladder and worked his way up over the steep roof of the barn to the far side, where the rope held him in place while he worked on the shingles. He found the rope neatly coiled up by the tractor with the belt resting on top of the coil. Mr. Muldoon must have been taking a coffee break at the house because he was nowhere in sight. Eddie looked this way and that and then said he didn't think his pa would mind us using the rope to lasso old Tom. I wish pa was a cowboy or rancher instead of just a farmer, Eddie said, grunting as he hoisted the big coil of rope and draped it over his shoulder. Or a professional baseball player, that'd be good. But he's just so ordinary. All he does is dumb things like put new shingles on the barn. It's sort of embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, I said, trying to sound sympathetic, as though my family were interesting. I suggested to Eddie that we cut off a piece of rope long enough for a lariat. But Eddie said no, it might make his paw mad. He said it'd be better if we used the whole rope and just tied a loop on one end. He hauled all the rope out to the watering trough, tied a loop, and climbed up on the corral fence above the trough. The excess rope was scattered about the barnyard behind us in coils and assorted snarls. Presently, Tom came moseying out of the pasture <clears throat> and headed for the trough. He stopped and eyed us suspiciously. Satisfied that he could handle anything we might have thought up for him, he plodded on in. What are you boys up to now, growled Mr. Muldoon, come in behind us. Startled, we both jumped. Nothing, Pa, Eddie said. Why, why, well, because you got my new safety rope snarled all over the barnyard, that's why. Sorry, Pa, Eddie said, turning his attention back to Tom. The horse is dripping its, dipping its muzzle into the trough. We're just trying to catch old Tom. He's a lazy beast, Mr. Baldoon said. <clears throat> Both Eddie and I were intently watching old Tom. It was only much later that we learned Mr. Muldoon had picked up his safety belt and strapped it on. I'd help you catch him, son, but I gotta get back to shingle in the barn before it starts to rain. That's okay, Pa, Eddie said. I think we just about got him. Mr. Muldoon started untangling the safety rope and forming it into a coil on the ground. Tom lifted his dripping muzzle from the trough and glared up at us, his ears flattened back against his head. Eddie tossed the lasso around his neck and jerked it tight. The horse reared up, pawed the air, and whinnied angrily. Then he bolted for the pasture, the rope sizzling through Eddie's hands. Ow, he cried, jerking away. That burns. Now what's got into old Tom, Mr. Muldoon said, looking up from his coil of rope. 
stupid horse. I lassoed him, Eddie explained. You did? <laughs> you did, Mr. Baldoon said. With what? All the loops and turns and tangles of the rope slithered this way and that and then snapped straight <laughs> straight out towards the pasture. The quail in Mr. Baldoon's feet disappeared like a giant strand of spaghetti slurped from a plate. At that instant, Mr. Muldoon took the longest step <laughs> I'd ever seen anyone take in my life. He must have stepped a good 30 feet from takeoff to touchdown. Both Eddie and I were impressed. <clears throat> wow, Eddie. <laughs> Did you see that? Holy smokes. And look at Pa go. <laughs> look at Pa go now. <laughs> I never knew he could run so fast. He must be trying to. <laughs> he must be trying to help us catch old Tom. He so he sounded so pleased and proud that I couldn't help but envy him. Eddie obviously had the <laughs> fastest father in the county, maybe even the whole country, or even the world. Old Tom must have been surprised too, and even terrified when he saw <laughs> Mister Baldoon racing after. Him. Racing after him at such amazing speed for a mere human. Tom kicked up his heels, stretched out, and ran even harder, as if his life depended on it, which, as we later learned, it did. <laughs> Eddie and I watched until his paw and Tom disappeared into the creek bottom, both of them practically flying. As far as we could judge, though, Mr. Muldoon wasn't gaining an inch on the horse. <laughs> Shucks, Eddie said. Pa ain't never going to catch Tom just by chasing him. He should know better. A horse can outrun a man every time, even one as fast as Pa. <laughs> Hard to say, I said. Your Pa was really moving. <laughs> I bet if he wasn't wearing his big old clodhopper boots, he could. Maybe, Eddie said. But there's no... No point in us waiting around for them to get back. We might as well go do something else. Got any ideas? We could go ride your pigs, I said. To tell you the truth, I'm kind of sick of horses. Yeah, me too, Eddie said. So which pig do you want to ride? Trigger or champ? <laughs> <laughs> Fastest man in the world. <laughs> well, luckily we never tied you behind any horses, Pa. Yeah. Wow, I don't know if I could take another story tonight. <laughs> hey, Pop, you brought another book. What's that one called? Or what's the title of that one? The title of this book is Never Sniff a Gift Fish. And that's laid out the same, just a bunch of short stories like that, right? Correct, yep. And what, you got one picked out of that book? Well, I thought we'd give this one a try. What's this one called? The title is The Short, Happy Life of Francis Cucumber. <laughs> Excellent. Right. I'd like to learn about Mr. Francis Cucumber. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it's about a banana. <laughs> a lively <laughs> banana. <laughs> oh, whenever you're ready. Okay, we'll give this a whirl. Almost every day, the boy, Ace, would come over to the Jiffy Trading Post, and he and I would sit on the steps and talk. I remember one October morning in particular. What is it like to be a hunting guide, Ace asked. It's very good to be a hunting guide, I said. 
but the hard thing is to guide well and true and honorably. I wish you would stop talking like a Hemingway character, he said. Nobody talks that way anymore. In the old days, everyone talked like a Hemingway character, I said. They don't anymore, he said. Yes, I said, I know, it's sad. You're the only person left who still talks like a Hemingway character, he said. You still talk that way. It makes me sick. I don't give a bleep, 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 I said. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk how I please. You don't have to use the dashes with me, he said. I know that word. Do you know all the words, I asked him. Yes, he said. I know bleepy, bleep, bleep, and bleepy, bleep, 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 and bleep, 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 and bleep, 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 and bleep, 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 bleep. That's very good, I said. How about bleep, 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 bleep. Do you know that one? I do now, he said. That's a real dandy. <laughs> Remember, you only use that word when you are being charged by a rhino and have missed with the second barrel of your 455 Rigby. It's a large caliber word. I'll remember, he said. Now tell me again how it is to be a hunting guide. I told him again how it is to be a hunting guide. Ace never tired of hearing about what it was like to be a hunting guide, possibly because he always fell asleep after the first five minutes. In the old days, I told Ace, the hunting guide business was much more fun. When you met another hunting guide out in the bush and he wanted to know how you were getting along with your client, he would ask, are you still drinking his whiskey? Now the question is, are you still drinking his mineral water? <laughs> mineral water has taken a lot of the fun out of hunting guide business. How long has it been since you've had a client, Ace asked. 82 days, I said. That's a long time to go without a client, he said. Yes, I said, my luck has been very bad. At least a dozen times now, I have taken parties of five into the bush and come back with parties of only two or three. It may be an omen. It may be that you are a bad guide, he said. I laughed, playfully snatched his motorcycle helmet and held it high overhead. He made some sounds of annoyance, but finally managed to get the chin strap loose and dropped it to the ground. <laughs> he rubbed his neck. Why, you old, he said. Why did you do that? I did it because you are a wise elbow, I said. You have always been a wise elbow, ever since I have known you. That is why you are 22 years old and still in the fifth grade. <laughs> Ace pointed up the street. Hey, would you look at that, he said. I turned cautiously, keeping one eye on him, because he likes to play tricks. Sometimes hitting me on the ear with a big board when my back is turned. <laughs> what? He is not tricking me this time. A chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce was coming down the street. It pulled up next to the trading post, and a middle-aged man and a much younger woman got out. I had great difficulty not staring at the see-through blouse the skin-tight shimmering gold pants, the diamond necklace and the earrings. The woman wore a simple print dress with no jewelry. <laughs> she was blonde and tan and slender, with large blue eyes and a fine nose. She was very beautiful. I can always tell Southern Californians when I see them. There is something different about them. I nudged Ace and whispered, 
check the license plate. Oklahoma, he said. Just as I figured, I said, there's something different about them Oklahomans. <laughs> there's something different about Texans, too. I remember the Texas I guided up into the Hoodoo Mountains. He had money written all over him. After that, I could never stand to look at another tattoo. I sometimes <laughs> wonder whether he ever found his way out of the mountains. <laughs> The man and woman started walking towards me and Ace. I pushed my hat back and my thumb leaned against the porch post. Stuck a wooden match in my mouth and chewed on it. Fortunately, I still have lightning reflexes and was able to smother the flames in my mustache before they took my eyebrows. <laughs> Apparently, the man and woman had never seen lightning reflexes before. Are you all right? The woman asked. I squinted through the smoke of my smoldering lip stubble and grinned at her. <laughs> Mouth caught fur. All right. I said, casually. Oh, the man and woman glanced uneasily at each other. What can I do for you folks? We're looking for Wilson, the hunting guide, the man said. At your service, I said. Oh, the man said. Oh, dear, the woman said. <laughs> the man said his name was Francis Cucumber, and the woman was his wife, Dill. <laughs> he was after a trophy mountain goat. Friends had told him that Wilson was the best hunting guide in these parts. With all due modesty, I confirmed the truth of what his friends had told him. My services don't come cheap, though, I told Cucumber. I get $15 a day plus expenses. Colorful expressions and ironic marks are extra. We'll take the package, Cucumber said. We made arrangements to pick up the Cucumbers at their hotel the following morning. I knew Ace had wanted to go along to help with camp chores, but was too proud to ask. Finally, when he couldn't stand any more, he blurted out, Come on, let me go. I chuckled good-naturedly and released him from the half-Nelson. You remember to mind your manners around the clients, I told him, since he had only two manners. I figured minding them was not too much to ask. One thing puzzles me, Ace said. What, I said. How come you told them your name was Wilson? Because Wilson already has more clients than he can handle. <laughs> that night I prepared for the safari into the mountains by rereading Hemingway's African short stories. If you are to guide well and true and honorably, it is very important to read Hem's African stories. Sometimes if you have not read Hemingway in a long while, you cannot think of anything ironic to say to your clients. Clients become very, very upset with the guide who does not speak with irony, even when he doesn't get them lost in the mountains. Once, some clients and I were lost for three weeks, and I ran out of ironic remarks and had to fall back on my knock-knock jokes. <laughs> it's very dangerous to tell lost hunters knock-knock jokes, because sometimes they will charge you without warning and attempt to stuff you socks in your mouth. That is why you never go into the mountains without a good supply of ironic remarks. 
The next morning we rode up into the Hoodoo Mountains, and in the beginning everything went well, and I thought we were going to have a fine hunt. Then Cucumber began to complain about his feet dragging on the ground. That is because your legs are long and the burrows are short, I explained. I know what the reason is, Cucumber snapped. <laughs> what I want to know is, why don't you let me ride the horse and you ride the burrow? <laughs> Clearly the man was not without a sense of humor, and I complimented him on his clever chest. <laughs> it is very good sign that you can make jokes even after the toes on your boots have worn off, I said. You joke well. <laughs> blankety, 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 blank, 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 cucumber shouted. <laughs> I glanced swiftly around to see if we were being charged by a rhino, which is rare in Idaho. There was no sign of one. Already, Cucumber was beginning to hallucinate. I had often observed this tendency in clients before, but never so early in the hunt. That night, we camped by a small mountain lake. While Ace and I prepared supper, Cucumber and Dill got into a furious argument. At one point, I heard her scream, How could you be such a fool as to get us into this mess? Anybody could see that that idiot doesn't know anything about guiding. That raised my dander. For one thing, this was only the fifth time I had brought Ace along on an expedition. You couldn't expect him to know anything about guiding with so little experience. Even if he weren't an idiot, Ace didn't seem to mind that he had what had been said about him, or so I judged from the fact that he burst into loud guffaws. I fixed my famous whatchamacallit stew for supper, and Cucumber and Dill even complained about that. Both of them said it upset their stomachs. If they had just tasted it, though, I'm sure they'd have found it not only hearty, but delicious. <laughs> After supper, we sat around the fire and talked and drank mineral water. <clears throat> Tomorrow we will be in goat country, I said. The goats are very fine and white and beautiful this time of year and they are like patches of snow against the gray rock of the cliffs. And sometimes they are actually patches of snow, and then you know you are not yet in goat country at all, which is very discouraging after you have spent the day climbing a rock cliff. Huh, Cucumber said. Egad, Dill said. I have known hunters to shoot the patches of snow after they have climbed the cliffs, I said. They do not laugh when they shoot the patches of snow either, but are very serious about it. And sometimes they even cry, which is bad for the morale of the other hunters. I'll bet, Dale said. The way you tell the goats from the patches of snow is that the patches of snow don't move or go, Baa! I said, go, Baa! Cucumber said, how far is it back to the road? You don't understand, I said. There are no goats between here and the road. Now we'd better turn in. Tomorrow we must climb the cliffs and find the goats, and we must hunt well and true and honorably. Your manner of speech reminds me of someone I've read before, Dill said. I think it's, it's, yes, I said. Abigail Finley Dunlop, she said. Well, enough of this silly prattle, I said sternly. Let's hit the sack. We've got a gut buster of a day ahead of us tomorrow. Ain't you going to talk like a Hemingway character no more? Ace asked. I was starting to like it. Shut up and douse the fire, I said ironically. 
Shortly after sunup the next morning, Ace and I discovered that the cucumbers had stolen my horse and vanished without trace. Naturally, I was furious. What really made me mad, though, was not my client's act of ingratitude and treachery and deceit. My horse was the only one who knew the way home. Even worse, I couldn't get Ace to shut up. It's not enough to guide well and true and honorably, he said. You must also know which direction is north and which direction is south, and it is good, too, if you can tell east from west. <laughs> Never ask for whom the belt holds. Oh, the cucumbers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's got a way with them short stories. He does. Do you think Mr. McManus did some guiding? I don't know. <laughs> it's very possible. We'll have to look him up. Well, folks, this has been the first installment of Storytime with Pops. What a pleasure. We look forward to the next one. No kidding. Thanks for coming in, Pop. Hey, my pleasure. Then we'll whisk you off to bed. Yeah, we got to put you to bed. Give you some mineral water. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this has uh, been another episode of Just the Two of Us Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Nate. We'll catch you later. Douse the fire, Nate. <laughs>